and welcome to the newest episode of The Adoption Files. Today, it is my great honor to welcome Julie Ryan McGill. She is the author of the award-winning memoir, Twice a Daughter, A Search for Identity, Family, and Belonging. So Julie is adopted. She's also a twin. And what began as a simple desire for a family medical history has evolved into a complicated quest, one that unearths secrets, lies, and family members that are literally right next door. And I think this book is so well-written and to just say that it's well-written doesn't do enough to convey how I feel about this book. I feel like, Julie, I feel like you do a phenomenal job of bringing the reader into your experience. I'm, I'm really hoping that many, many people will read this book. It just really brings home how universal the search is for, you know, answers about who we are and where we come from and what our rights are to our information. And, you know, I just, think about passages in your book that really convey the struggle that adoptees face when we try to balance our relationship with our adoptive families and our desire to know our origins. Wow, thanks, Saint Sande, for that big introduction. Um, I think that that was the hardest thing for me uh, when I started that, the journey with my sister to figure out um, what medical history we had, it was all spurred on at 48 years old when I had a breast biopsy. I hadn't really done too much work before then. And I knew going into um, the process that I was going to have to find, uh, that I would have to talk to my adoptive parents about it. And I wasn't looking forward to that conversation because while they they said that they would always support us if we chose to go down that path, I think secretly, I knew that they weren't going to react well to it. And that's indeed what happened was, um, so I had this health issue going on and then this conflict um, with my parents at the same time. So there was a lot of stress and tension um, to begin the whole process. And then certainly as, as many other adoptees know, there's the roller coaster ride of which way do I, where do I start? Who do I contact? Um, and then all the waiting and the roadblocks that happen once, once you get on that search. Yeah. I don't think very many people outside of the adoption community really understand how complicated the the whole process is from so many different perspectives. There's the emotional and the interpersonal and the physical and the financial. There are just so many aspects of making that decision and then pursuing it through to whatever results we might get. Right, and it certainly um, depends on what state you are too. When you're when you're deciding you want to search for your birth family, um, I was lucky in, and I had no idea I was lucky that I was living in Illinois at the time, and they were undertaking a whole overhaul of their adoption statutes 
So um, right when I was getting ready to connect with my birth mother, the state changed the laws to allow adoptees after a certain birth date to, to access their original birth records. And while this didn't necessarily benefit me um, because of the name that my, my mother had used, um, it did benefit a lot of other people. Um, one of the caveats in the Illinois law, which is also, I think, true in several other states, is that a birth parent has the right to go in and block access to the adoptee um, for accessing their, their information. So it, it protects their privacy and it also allows um, the right to know for the adoptee. It's really kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, I've seen quite a few of these open access states that have this kind of tricky little loophole that in some states, I think they're called disclosure vetoes. In other states, they're called redaction clauses, and they're not well advertised. So an adoptee can go into the process really excited mm -hmm. that they're going to have access only to come up against uh, these vetoes. And, right. you know, do you mind talking a little bit about how, how your process started? Because you had a pretty complicated path. <laughs> yeah, I, I think my um, the confidential intermediary who was really the ultimately the search angel that really helped me unlock everything. She said, you know, 95% of adoptees that choose to search for information are successful. <laughs> and she said, my case hit every single what if, what if, what if. Um, so she contacted my birth mother um, and my original birth record didn't have my birth mother's real name on it. She had used an alias, which was back in 1959, a very common uh, legal allowance for birth mothers. They were encouraged to take an alias and that was just one more safeguard to protect their, their privacy. So my original birth record, when I held it in my hands in 2011, um, it had my birth mom's fake name and in the space where my birth father's name should be, it said legally omitted, which was also another um, perfectly legal vehicle back then. Um, birth fathers didn't have to sign off on their parental rights and adoptions could proceed without a birth father even knowing that he fathered a child or signing off on his rights. So um, my original birth record, while I'd love to, to have it and hold it in my hand is really, was really not very helpful. The, I needed the intermediary, um, which was a service in Illinois to access the closed adoption records through Catholic Charities, which was our adoption agency. And she was the one that made contact with our birth mother. Um, and at that time, my birth mother denied contact with my sister and I, uh, which was an absolutely devastating moment. I had no idea that she would do something like that and really no understanding of birth mothers in general. Um, but what the good that came out of that experience was that I ended up in a post-adoption support group through Catholic Charities. And there were a lot of birth mothers in the group and adoptive parents and adoptees. And I really came to understand the experience that all of us was involved in. 
there were birth mothers that uh, their, their child that they were seeking out didn't want contact with them. Um, and adoptive parents that were supporting their uh, adopted child through this process. My mother wasn't supporting me. So it was just very enlightening to be in the room with, I call them the, my tribe, um, and feel validated and supported and gaining an understanding of, wow, I, there's all this I didn't even know. And I came out of that experience kind of having sympathy for my birth mom that here, you know, 48, 50 years had gone by and all of a sudden I show up on uh, literally in a, her mailbox uh, wanting to make contact. And one of the most valuable pieces of information that my, the social worker Catholic Charities provided was she said, you know, think of it like the movie has started and you show up in the middle. That's how it is for a birth relative uh, that's been approached or has been found and they're not ready to receive you. Um, so that whole process happened. And then astoundingly one day, my birth mom called the intermediary and everything changed on a dime. She had changed her mind and um, we, we, went through the process of getting to know one another and then meeting. And uh, of course there was that big question always in the back of uh, everybody's mind is, was she, would she give us our birth father's name? And if she didn't, what would we do about it? Because you know what had started this whole search was medical information. And while I, I did gain hers in the very beginning, I also needed his. Um, I had four children uh, and my twin sister has two. So there were six people whose health and well-being depended on what we, uh, what we would find. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing for people to understand that this isn't just about us as adoptees. It's something that involves, you know, the people that we love, our families as well and our grandkids and our potential great-grandchildren and, you know, if we choose to have children. And I also think your point about you're needing your father's information is a very valid one. I personally think that fathers are often ignored in the whole adoption search, adoption uh, you know, when you see shows on TV that dramatize reunions, they're almost always looking for that mother-child moment that they can uh, make dramatic for their audience. I rarely see the, the acknowledgement that fathers are important as well. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly he was a second seat to finding my birth mom, but the way the story unfolds, and I won't give out to, um, the plot points for readers that want to read it. Yeah, um, he becomes very unapproachable, but I find out that I have some um, siblings, and uh, they the connection that I that I make with them towards the end of the book is absolutely astounding, um, and it ends up healing a lot of wounds in my adoptive family and in my family, and also in. Um, the families that I find. So 
you almost really don't know when you're starting out on these searches, how far you're going to be able to go, right? Depending on the gatekeepers that you encounter. Um, and then you then you don't know how willing people will be to receive you. Um, and one of the, I think, one of the lovely outcomes of this whole search, because I mean, most of it was difficult. And then there were some really happy moments. I, I think now that this all happened between 2008 and 2014. So I'm seven years away from how the search resulted. And I have all these new relationships with family members, um, cousins and aunts and uncles. Uh, some of them, depending, I think it's generational, are very accepting and welcoming and validating. And some are not, they're, they're still stuck um, back in the 1950s and 60s that this was such a shameful thing to have happened to a woman, uh, to get pregnant, the, the young man doesn't want to marry and, um, or they're encouraged not to marry because of their age. And then uh, a child gets given up for adoption and everybody's life changes. Um, so uh, the shame and the secrecy that's bound up in the 50s and 60s and 70s really affects the, the birth parents and also the adoptive parents. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention is when I was growing up, my twin sister and I, people would say, oh, you look just like your mom. And I, I you know, inwardly, I'm thinking, I, okay, yeah, maybe I look like her, but I can't possibly be like her. We're not biologically related, but um, once I was in my search and I, and I met my birth mom and I had all these pictures of her when she was a young woman she looked so much like my adoptive mom at the same age. And this was something that the adoption agencies worked really hard at. They wanted the adoptee to look like they fit in that family. So there would be no stigma on that child for being illegitimate um, or not belonging. And um, you know, nowadays, I don't think that, that there is that attention to detail because really um, it's not a stigma to be an adoptee uh, in these times. Yeah, I think things have definitely changed a lot, but that had to be very startling to see the resemblance between your mother and your adoptive mother. Yes, it, it really was. And uh, the other thing that we don't know as closed adoption adoptees is what our ethnicity or our background was. So I wasn't told anything. Um, in fact, uh, so you just take on the identity of your adoptive family. My parents were German and Irish and I just took that on and said, this is what I am. And one of the startling things that I do find out in the course of um, finding my relatives is I'm, I'm German, uh, I'm Scotch-Irish, and French, but astoundingly, I'm also Native American and not having grown up with any of those customs um, or knowledge of that, I really do feel deprived because uh, I am, my birth father was a, a one quarter Native American um, Chippewa and that would mean that I'm one eighth. And certainly that's 
more than most people. And I would have liked to have known more about that heritage growing up, but it was not, um, it's once it's not available to me. Yeah, I absolutely, I can relate to that. I grew up Irish Catholic and I wasn't able to find my father until I did DNA. And in the course of, of having the DNA test results come in, I'm looking at this complete change in my cultural identity, because I went from thinking that I was Irish and the never to be spoken of English part of the family to discovering that I'm just this very small amount of Irish and I'm primarily um, French, German, Scottish, and I also have some Jewish ancestry, which is how we traced my father's family because my mother's side doesn't have any Jewish ancestry. And the fact that I discovered that that was a part of my background that I never had the opportunity to explore. I mean, strangely, I was always attracted to the Jewish faith and their holidays and their observances. And my younger son, his, his partner used to say, I, I bet you anything you have Jewish ancestry because almost all of his serious partners in life have been um, Jewish. Mm -hmm. So he's always been attracted to the traditions and the, the family rituals and things in that community. So discovering that that was part of who we are was really something that I do feel deprived as well. Yeah. Um, I'll just share a funny little anecdote and this is not anti-Semitic in any way. Um, my son, who's 32 now, probably needed to start shaving in seventh grade. So um, and he was always getting detentions in high school because that he said they, that he didn't shave, but he, he just was one of those people that probably needed to shave twice a day. And we used to tease him because he had a lot of red in his beard. Um, and we said, you know, you really look like a, a little rabbi. And um, then we came to find out uh, on my my birth mother's side of the family, there, there were Messianic Jewish ancestors in their line. And one of the pictures that I did end up um, receiving from her was a picture of uh, my great, great grandfather, who was a Messianic Jewish rabbi. And he had a beard uh, that resembles my son's uh, ability to grow a beard. So I, I completely identify with, with uh, you discovering that about your ancestry too. Oh, you know, and that's funny because that means that you and I are probably distantly related to one another. Probably. <laughs> Cause I, I think that they did the history and they've, they've determined yeah. that, yeah, that we're all, if you have some Jewish ancestry you're you're likely related to one another in some way. So yeah. I don't know. I, I know as an adoptee, when I meet other adoptees, that's one of the first things that comes into my head is I wonder if we're related to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think um, when going back to our conversation about what we owe our children as adoptees, uh, my youngest daughter said, I am so glad that you are finally doing this for all of us because I am deathly afraid of falling in love with someone I'm related to. And 
and, oh. and you, you get that, right? Oh, yes. yes. I have a very unfortunate story. <laughs> I was raised unaware that I was adopted. So I actually did date somebody that I'm related to at one point. Thankfully, wow. thankfully the, you know, we're like third or fourth cousins, mm-hmm. but it was still, I just remember discovering that and just feeling physically ill. Disturbed. Yeah. Very. Oh, oh yeah. Thinking I'm going to be sick. <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> no, it's not okay. but protecting the privacy of our our birth parents was more important than that happening to us which is always astounding to me oh absolutely and the idea that it's more important to protect this illusion of relationship than it is to provide us with the medical history that we need to remain healthy seems at odds to me with the idea of being loved. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I mean, I can accept that my adoptive parents loved me as best they could, but deliberately concealing information seems really questionable to me. That sounds like it more was convenient for them to do so um, at your expense. Yeah, I think so. And uh, you know, your experience with Catholic charities, I don't want to give away too much of your book either, because I really think people need to read your book. Uh, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your thoughts, we'll just move away from Catholic charities for here for a moment. If you wouldn't mind sharing for the listeners, a little bit of your thoughts on using a paid investigator service. There are a lot of services out there that are fee-based that purport to do searches for adoptees. And I was wondering if you have some thoughts on adoptees using those kinds of agencies. Well, I did have experience with a lot of different um, search angels, as we call them in the in the business, right? Um, there are search agencies that you can hire. Um, and I think that that is part of the difficulty for adoptees is we don't know where to begin. We mm-hmm. don't know who to trust. Um, so, and the internet is so available and these agencies will do the minimal amount of work. And then if they come across um, a stumbling block and yeah, they basically say, we've gone as far as that we can do. And, and, and it may be exchange of information and a, a check for four or $500 and you come away with nothing. Um, one of the things that's beneficial for people that have been adopted through organizations like Catholic Charities or the Cradle, um, a lot of those organizations have now a, a search arm um, and they do support older adoptees in connecting with family or birth parents connecting with children. Um, And they do it privately in their own manner. When I was going down the the search path, I had had, uh, gotten some advice from a private investigator and and ended up with this intermediary service through the state of Illinois and a judge oversaw the program. So I um, I felt very good about that, that I had this judge that was acting on my behalf. 
Um, but we had a time limit. We only had a year in which to get information. Uh, there, was a, there was a fee for that service at the time, but I believe in Illinois now it's all state funded, um, which is wonderful. And the organization I use, which is called the Midwest Adoption Center, they also help um, people that were in foster care connect either with family members or people that they lived with um, and were close to and want to reconnect with, which I think is an amazing resource uh, because uh, foster care people can, they can stay in foster care and not get adopted. And then when they reach 18, they're all on their own. Um, and to me, I think that that is a really difficult place to be. Um, and this, this particular organization um, helps the foster care uh, people connect with their past. Well, I think that's wonderful because I think we really do a disservice to foster children in this country. Mm -hmm. I think we tend to move them from one place to the next. And then when they're 18, they're just out. Yeah. And, and I, it all comes from closing the orphanages. I think people had this horrified idea maybe brought out by a bad movie or something that orphanages were terrible um and some certainly some of them were but a lot of the religious orders that ran orphanages did an excellent job and when those were shut down in illinois the department of children and family services took over and that's when the foster care system really got going and uh often uh, i just heard this story the other day from a, a fellow adoptee she had a wonderful experience in her foster care family and lived with them for two years and they wanted to adopt her, but because they were not Catholic, um, I guess the birth mother had in her orders that, that the child could only go to a family that was Catholic. And so she, after two years of bonding with this family, she had to be adopted by another family. Oh, wow. uh, so, so many injustices. Um, in, in the foster care system, it's very difficult. Yeah, I, in my professional life, I had spent quite a bit of time around children who have been in foster care. And it's a, it's a very flawed system. I think just like adoption needs reform, I think the foster care system certainly needs to be addressed as well. I actually grew up next door to a decommissioned orphanage that had been run by, uh, I think they were Benedictine okay. yep. order, order. And because I grew up, you know, going to Catholic school and being terrified of nuns and that whole thing. So, uh, but they had converted the school to a school for children who were considered incorrigible. Mm. I don't know if you remember that old term. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we occasionally had kids who would make a run for it. And it, it was an interesting experience. I always felt very sad for them because they were in this, you know, kind of contained environment and occasionally mm -hmm things, you know, but that was a very different situation because those were kids who had parents. So I think that's another thing too, is a lot of people think of the word orphan when they think of adoptees 
And yet very few of us are actually orphans. Yeah, I, I think, well, I consider, I'd never considered that term um, to describe myself, but there was, there was a three work period of time where we uh, didn't have a family. And so we were living at um, an orphanage in downtown Chicago and it was called St. Vincent's Home. Um, I think there's a lot of them across the country named after St. Vincent. Um, and we lived there for three weeks before we were adopted. So we were orphans for three weeks. Um, and that's a tough term to kind of get your head around and think of yourself as uh, in limbo. Absolutely. In limbo. Yeah, I, I spent two weeks in the hospital's maternity ward before I was taken home. And I don't, do you ever wish that you could meet someone from that time period that could reassure you that you weren't just left in a bassinet between feedings and, and changings, that there was someone who cared for you during that time? Um, Catholic Charities in Chicago it still owns the building, uh, St. Vincent's. It is now a Catholic Relief Services Center. But a lot of the nurses that work there um, are still involved. And every year we have what's called like a little alumni reunion. And some of the, the um, care workers and the nuns that ran the orphanage will get on a, a call with all of us. And they speak very lovingly of the babies. Um, they've talked about this miraculous medal that was pinned on our little outfits when we were um, going to our adoptive families. And there seemed to be a ritual. There's also a little book about St. Vincent's in Chicago uh, written by three of the, the nurses with pictures. Um, and so while I don't have definitively my history of what happened to my sister and I when we were about three weeks living there, I have a general idea um, of what the place looked like. Um, one of the questions that I, that I still have never been able to answer is, what do you do with twins at an orphanage? Um, do you put them in the same crib or do you put them in the crib next to one another? And for some reason, I'm just fascinated with trying to understand what did happen to us while we were there together um, and who cared for us. But it seemed like we must've been very well taken care of from what I've been able to read and research. Well, that's nice that you have the resources available that, that at least kind of give you some sort of place in time. Uh, but I didn't have any of that until I started on this path in 19 and 2008 and 2000. Oh, so when uh, you were growing up, were you not exposed to any of this information? Um, Theoretically, I, I, my parents would talk about St. Vincent's, but for some reason I thought it was the hospital. Um, and, and they never said the word orphanage. Uh, so it really kind of went over my head. I didn't ask too many questions. And this uh, post-adoption group that I'm involved with at Catholic Charities, before COVID, we used to meet at St. Vincent's. Um, and every single time I walked through the front doors of that place, I would get so emotional. I write about it in my book, going back there with my sister. And um, to a person, people will say, 
yes, going back to where we were adopted from is a most meaningful experience for an adoptee because it's this sense of place and belonging that um, is just that little window of time in between your birth family and your adoptive family that belongs to you. Yeah, I have wanted to go back to where I was born. It's kind of complicated in that it's in England and I'm in the United States and it's on a military post. And due to the situation since 9-11, they no longer allow just random people to bop onto the post and look around and then leave again. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, when my husband was in the military, we never got a duty station in, in Europe. So there was never the opportunity to go while I had a military ID. And I also didn't know I was adopted. So I guess that would have complicated things further, but yeah, I have seen pictures and I have thought about what that would feel like to go back there. I, well, I hope that you're able at some point because it really is a, a very meaningful experience. Um, it's also disconcerting because, you know, how we think of ourselves is not as, um, as, a, as an orphan or as this foundling or whatever, whatever label you want to put towards your situation. And uh, it's a reality check, certainly. Um, yeah, I think it would be. I have my social workers notes about when the exchange took place and when I was given to my adoptive parents and they described the office. I was um, handed over to my adoptive parents in the office of the intermediary that was being used. So I have this like vision of myself being taken from the hospital nursery to the major's office and then being handed over. It was all done in secrecy. So there's also this kind of idea of like this furtive nature to the whole thing. So, so I, I think it would be interesting to go. It's also the post where my mother and my uncle were attending high school at the time. Crazy. So, Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be really weird to like go visit the high school. Yeah. Well, I hope you get to do that once the world opens back up again. Yeah, it would be nice. We were supposed to go last year, actually, but that obviously didn't happen. So, yeah. So you had quite a time frame from beginning to end that encompassed your search. I think you said it was maybe like seven or eight years yeah, the 2008 was when I had the breast biopsy and I first started to do the research. Um, and it's, there was a lot of family things going on at that time. So we didn't get serious about it until 2010. Um, and then things got rolling and then uh, it took a while to find our birth father uh, for various different reasons. <laughs> and once we did find who we thought was the right person we needed validation and uh, somebody needed to do a DNA test. And that was a whole nother process. Um, uh, it does end up working out and there's a happy ending with that in the book. But um, when I was doing my research, 
DNA analysis wasn't what it is today. Mm -hmm. Certainly it wasn't as accurate, but, but there weren't as many subscribers. So when I did my 23andMe and my ancestry, I was only matching with third and fourth cousins. Um, I didn't have all the names in my family at that time. So it, they, it wasn't very beneficial to me. Whereas in current times, there's so many adoptees that we're reading about in the news that they do an ancestry test or a DNA test and they find um, you know, the name that they always were missing. They're, they're able to find that name and they're able to make connections. So um, I think it's a, these are better days for adoptees that are trying to search and don't know where to start the yeah, first place. I through DNA. Yeah, I really think so. I had not had any close matches for, for years. And it wasn't until late 2019 that I had my first second cousin match on my father's side, mm -hmm. but he didn't have a family tree. So, and he didn't respond to my messages. Right. Cause I think at you know, we weren't always checking. We weren't always thinking that we were going to have a match. Yeah. And, and people, that's another aspect, you know, when you said you don't have, or you didn't have a lot of your family names, the advice that genealogists will give you is tag all the people that, you know, are on this side of your family. And then the people who don't belong there, they're going to be on the other side of your family but as an adoptee, you look at them and say, I don't know either side. Right. <laughs> right. And then you've got the married names um, complicating things. I just got a uh, match the other day on 23andMe for a, a first cousin. Wow. Um, and I have gotten matched with first cousins before, but I already had met them. Um, but this was somebody that I hadn't ever matched with before. And I know who they are but I'm not sure that they know who I am because I'm fairly certain that um, my birth mother hasn't let everybody know okay. uh, the situation. So um, I haven't responded to them um, because I need to check to make sure I don't get sideways with um, any of my relatives at this point. See, and, and that's another thing that is incredibly challenging as an adoptee is if we want to maintain certain relationships or if we need information from certain relatives. I know I felt like I was constantly walking on eggshells. Mm -hmm. I was terrified in the initial months after finding my mother that I would alienate her Mm -hmm. I would never find out who my father was. Yeah. And, and it turned out she never did. She never has told me, but I, you know, we think about that factor is how do we navigate those relationships when we know at any moment we could be rejected again or yeah. be, Yeah. Yeah, it's a very difficult situation. They can, they can, it's like a turning on the faucet. They can just turn it off whenever they'd like to, um, which is, as you said, it's like walking on eggshells. Um, and I'd still like that with, with my birth mom. She, uh, 
there's people that she's told and people she hasn't told. They're not people that I'm going to see uh, walking around because we don't live in the same places. But um, I do feel sorry for her that um, she hasn't been more honest with people. And but that is her choice. Um, and that I think that was one of the things that I like to talk about as a result of of writing the book is, you know, there's so many myths that we need to dispel as adoptees or birth parents that are searching for their child. Uh, not every adoptee wants to search for their birth family, number one. Um, not every birth parent wants to be found, right? Um, and not every adoptive parent wants to support their child in their search. So there's a lot, there's a lot of myths out there. Um, and I certainly thought that my birth relatives would have welcomed me with open arms. I don't know where I came up with that naive concept. Um, I suppose because I had always been treated with love and respect and I, a nice person, I'm well-educated and I would think, you know, yeah, if I landed on somebody's doorstep, why wouldn't they want to say, yes, she's my daughter or my cousin or my, uh, my aunt or whatever. But um, that's not the case. Um, people have their own lives and their own situations and welcoming us in isn't always what they want to do. That is very true. I think I came at it from the same perspective. I was raised by my adoptive parents that family is everything and family connections are the most important thing that you could possibly experience. So when I discovered that my families were not interested in knowing me, it really made me feel bad about myself for a long time because it took me a while to realize that these were their issues and not mine. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a sibling who doesn't want contact because our father abandoned her. And I think discovering that I exist as her older sister and that I was also abandoned by our father brings up a lot of her trauma and a lot of the pain that she has not yet really come to terms with. Right. And so that it gets in the middle of your relationship because it's triggering to her. Yeah, absolutely. And my mother has definitely not processed her trauma. Mm -hmm. She, she definitely has not come to terms with it. I, and I think, like you said, there's a lot of myths and, you know, I kind of blame these reunion shows yeah. <laughs> because they show a time slot in life and, and then they don't always show what happens afterwards. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I have had um, some pretty good reunions with my families, but it, it's I'm almost 10 years out with some of them and they're still glitches. Um, here's an example that that just happened. My uh, birth mother married later in life. And my stepdaughter who stepdad was just very receptive to my sister and I, well, he got sick. Um, and I was not notified that he was sick and then he died suddenly. And I wasn't notified he died. Um, and when I finally talked to my birth mom about this, and this was just like a month ago, 
she uh, confessed that she had not told us because a lot of his family members didn't know about her situation and she really didn't want us to show up. So here we've already been in a relationship for over 10 years and we're still encountering um, these circumstances. I'm in my 60s, she's in her 80s and um, it's disappointing, certainly. Um, but what it says is this shame and this uh, history of secret keeping for her is so embedded in her personality and how she deals with life that she cannot get out of that. And I have to acknowledge that I shouldn't have to make her do that, that, that if I want her in my life, I accept her on her terms. And I'm working hard at that, but it is something um, that we're gonna have to keep working on because it's not easy. <laughs> no, because that's so painful to be made invisible. Yeah, and it's a choice, obviously. I have to say to myself, do I want to um, stand my ground and say, you can't treat me like this? Or do I want to say, this is who she is. I can't change her. And I still want her in my life. So it's a tough, it's a tough decision point. And I, I choose the, the latter. I choose to let her do this, let her know that I'm disappointed, but I don't make it a Mexican standoff because I still want, until she dies, I still want to be part of her life. Yeah. And I think that that's a really uh, insightful perspective. I think one of the things we struggle with as adoptees is how to, how to just deal with these people, you know, these people that we want in our lives. And I think that one of the huge differences between us and non-adopted people is that non-adopted people often will say to me, well, you know, my brother and I, we don't talk to each other either. Or me and my dad, we don't talk to each other. And I have to point out to them that first, I'm sorry to hear that, but also that you're making an informed decision. Mm -hmm. You are making a decision based on your understanding of the situation. You know this person, you've been in a relationship with this person, you have a history, you have some autonomy, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because as an adoptee, we often don't have the choice. You know, we're not given the choice whether or not we know our parent or our siblings or our grandparent. We're not able to say, okay, I've met this person and I really don't want to be in a relationship with this person. Mm -hmm. You're able to look at it and say, I'm disappointed that it is this way, but this is what I'm willing to accommodate because I value this relationship. That makes sense. And, and I'm trying to be respectful of her age and her circumstances too. Yeah. Um, um, and, and certainly I think my kids look at the situation um, and I think they feel a little bit sorry for me, the fact that I have to make these accommodations uh, and I don't have to do too much of that work with my adoptive family. They're, you know, they're very loving and accepting and, um, I, I took my adoptive mom to lunch a couple of weeks ago and she asked how my birth mom was. And that took us a long time to get to a point where we could even have a conversation about the other mother. Um, but she's gotten there and I give her a lot of credit uh, for doing that. And it's, 
you know, I attribute it to she, she, you know, deeply loves me, but we also have a long history together. And I think that that is part of why these reunions with birth relatives don't always work out is we don't have a long history, even though we're related to them. And we're coming from uh, different, different perspectives, and we can't always meet in the middle. Yeah, well, it's lovely that you had access to the group that you belong to. I, I think that that in talking to some other adoptees, those of us who have access to support groups like that, and who have the opportunity to get to know the mothers and hear adoptive parents' perspectives, and you get to have a safe environment to talk about everybody's feelings and desires. I think that makes a a big difference. I do too. And I think it's never too late. I would love to make that point with the readers. I was on a a call um, earlier in the summer and uh, it was a international association of journal writers. And so the call was at about 6 PM and a woman was on the call from Australia, which meant it was 6 AM her time. And we were talking about my book and she had read the book and she said, and she was a birth mom and she, she announced that to the group. And she said, until I read your book, I did not know that those kinds of groups existed for someone like me. And she said, as a result of reading the book, she found a support group of birth moms. And this woman was close to 80. And she said, I am, I am relieved relieved to find this group, but I'm also reliving a lot of my pain with these women. Uh, But it's been a very rewarding experience. So it's never too late for people to find um, a support group. And uh, as I talk about in my book, some of those social workers are the unsung heroes for adoptees. They don't make a lot of money. They're very compassionate people, and they really do work hard at trying to help us connect with the people that we lost because of adoption. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me today. And I am going to re-listen and take some notes and make sure that in the uh, podcast description that I include some of these different organizations that you talk about so that the people who listen will become aware if they haven't known that those resources are out there for them. Uh, Thank you, Andy. Uh, You're welcome. And um, everyone today, thank you so much for listening. Again, this was Julie Ryan McGew, the author of Twice a Daughter, and you really need to read her book. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me on your show. You're welcome. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.